So I pulled uh, three books off my shelf this week for uh, our dinner church, and I shared with them a little bit about those books, and I, I want to do that for you as well uh, this morning. So one of the books on my shelf is titled Expository Preaching, uh, written by John MacArthur, designed to teach me to be a better preacher, and it is 357 pages designed to make me a better preacher. I thought Ralph might say, you better read it again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Second book, E.M. Bounds on Prayer, Experiencing the Wonders of God Through Prayer, a book written to make me a better prayer, to teach me about prayer. 568 pages about prayer. And last but not least, the the greatest page-turner of them all, 630 pages, New Developments in Goal-Setting and Task Performance. (laughs) You you want to borrow a book? You know, this is, I suppose, a good one. I may have a goal someday of reading one of those pages. 630 pages designed to help me with setting goals. In contrast to that, in our New Testament, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, God's word to us so that we might know the Savior, so that we might know the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so let's just take the first one, Matthew. In my Bible, that's it. It's about 29 pages. Just think about that for a second. 630 pages to help me make goals. And the account of the one who is and was and is to come, the one in whom is our only hope for salvation, 29 pages. So we shared about that at dinner church. And we asked everyone together to come up with some observations. What what does that mean for us? And one of the observations that we came up with is, given the fact that, that we don't have a whole lot, it means what we do have is so important. Like the 29 pages in Matthew that we do have, and, and maybe the 19 pages in Mark that we do have, and Luke and John, it's so incredibly important. Now, Now, we have not been shortchanged at all. Everything that we need for life and salvation has been given to us. So this is not a matter that we don't have enough. But what we do have is is critically important. We're in a series titled The Cost of Discipleship. And we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount in the Cost of Discipleship. The Sermon on the Mount is the lengthiest single teaching that we have from Jesus. So if you want to know what is it that Jesus taught, maybe this would be the first place to go, the Sermon on the Mount. And so as I've been doing every week, remember the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a large crowd of people, and Jesus saw the large crowd, and he chose to withdraw from that crowd with his small group of disciples. And then he began to teach them what discipleship, what a life of discipleship entails. And what he was saying is that you no longer can just go along with the crowd. To to be a a disciple of Jesus Christ is an invitation to live into a new kingdom 
the kingdom that Jesus was ushering in, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, they run on different tracks. So some of the things that, that we've read, the kingdom of this world says don't murder, which is good. It's good advice. But the, the kingdom of God, Jesus says don't even harbor anger. Don't even and call somebody a, a fool. The kingdom of this world says don't commit adultery. Again, good advice. But Jesus says don't even entertain lustful thoughts. This world says, don't break your oath. Jesus says, don't be a person who needs to make oaths. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. This world says, an eye for an eye. You can get revenge, but make sure that your revenge is in keeping with the, that which was done to you. Make it, you know, kind of equal, an eye for an eye. But Jesus says, no, you've got to give up your rights for revenge altogether. The world says, love your neighbor, that one who's like you, that one that belongs to your tribe, and hate your enemy. But Jesus says, no, your enemy is your neighbor. Love your enemy. You see how these two kingdoms, they run on different tracks? So we're going to continue in the Sermon on, this mount, in, on the Mount this morning. We're going to skip chapter 6 uh, because I want to be done in time for Advent with uh, this series. We're going to skip chapter 6, go to chapter 7. But let me just give you a, the real, real quick summary of chapter 6. The first half of chapter 6 is basically don't be a hypocrite. There are certain practices that, that Christians take on. We we give, we pray, we fast. And Jesus is saying, when you do those things, like it's good to do them, I commend the practice, but make sure you're doing it not like the hypocrites who do it to be seen by others. And then the second half of chapter six, Jesus is basically saying, don't worry. Don't worry, I, your God is a loving God. He's a loving Father. He knows what you need. He's going to take care of you. You can trust him. And then we come to chapter 7, where we're jumping back in. So join me as we pray for the reading of God's word. Father, uh, once again, we pray as we have been praying that you would show us what we may not want to see and tell us what we may not want to hear so that we might become all of who you've created us to be. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. Amen. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. And then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
if we gathered a large crowd of uh, non-believers, people who are not Christian, and, and even if we added a group of Christians to that mix, and we asked them all, what is your greatest critique, your greatest criticism of Christians? I have no doubt that we would hear two things. They're hypocritical, critical, and they're judgmental. Now, they might say some other things, but I have no doubt that that would be included in the, the list of criticisms. They're hypocritical, and they're judgmental. Now, before we get defensive about that and want to push back, let's just sit with that critique for a moment. In this sermon, Jesus says two things unmistakably. He says, don't be a hypocrite. And he says, don't be judgmental. The very thing that Jesus is telling us not to do and not to be is the thing that we are so often accused of doing and being, which I find fascinating. The unbelieving world is looking at us, and what they're saying is, you are not like Jesus. Like Jesus says, don't be hypocritical. And don't be judgmental. They are not saying, you know, you're too much like Jesus and we just don't like him very much. We find Jesus offensive. That's not what they're saying. They're saying you're not enough like him. You see, there's something winsome about Jesus. There's something that draws people, all people, to Jesus. And they recognize when someone is portraying to represent Jesus and they're not. So if we did want to get a little defensive about the, the accusation, what would we say? I think we'd point out that uh, being judgmental is different than making judgments. Like Jesus is not talking about don't make judgments. That, that, would, be, that would be absurd to mean that, that we can't make any distinction about what is good versus what is evil, that we can't make a distinction about this is the way, walk in it, versus this is a way that we ought not go. Jesus can't be saying that. So we would critique that right away. We might agree with the accusation about being hypocrites. You know, just, was it last week where the passage said, uh, Jesus said, be perfect as I am perfect. Be holy as I am holy. So we follow a Savior whose command is be perfect, which sets us up all to be hypocrites. Like, how do you follow someone who says be perfect and not come up short of that, that our actions don't match our, our words? So we might say, yes, guilty as charged, come join the club. We might suspect that this accusation of us being judgmental and hypocritical is awfully convenient. It's a smokescreen that the world is throwing up so that they don't have to look at their own heart and the darkness that lurks in their own heart. It's easier just to look at us and say, oh, they're a bunch of hypocrites and they're so judgmental. So there's a lot of things that that we might say in defense. If we wanted to have a debate about this, we probably could. 
But in this passage, Jesus is not inviting us to a debate. He's inviting us to listen, to just lean in and listen. By my mathematical uh, uh, figuring out, about 15 to 20% of the Sermon on the Mount deals with the subject of hypocrisy. There's a reason that Jesus devoted so much of this sermon to the subject of hypocrisy. It's because Jesus knew something. He knew that we as disciples are prone to this very insidious sin. There's a reason that Jesus gathered his disciples, looked them in the eye, and said, don't judge others or you too will be judged in the same way. It's because he knew. He knew how easy it is for us to subtly, even unknowingly, become self-righteous, judgmental, and condemning. We're always comparing ourselves with other people. It's just what we do as humans, and it's a dangerous game that we play. So what is wisdom for us this morning? Wisdom is not to enter into the debate. Wisdom is not to try and dismiss this text. Wisdom is to lean in and to listen. Wisdom is to say to the Lord, search me, Lord. Search me and know my heart. Test me. Try me. See if there's any offensive way in me. And then lead me in the way that is everlasting. And so let's listen. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And so he called them in. And the first servant that he called in owed him a 10,000 bags of gold. And that servant was unable to pay the king his great debt. And so the king said, I'm going to sell you, I'm going to sell your wife, I'm going to sell your children into slavery to pay for the debt. And that servant fell down on his knees and cried for mercy. And the king had pity on him, had compassion and, and extended to him mercy and canceled the debt entirely. Your debt is wiped clean. And then that servant left and immediately found another person who owed him a pittance and demanded that he pay him. But that person didn't have the means to pay him. And so the servant reached out his hands around his neck and began to choke him. And the man cried out for mercy, have mercy on me. But the servant had no mercy. He threw him into prison. Word got back to the king about what the servant had done. And the king became outraged. You wicked servant, he said. I had mercy on you. I canceled your great debt. And then you went out and found someone with a little debt and you had no mercy at all. And he threw that man into prison. The servant who sat in judgment on, on the one who owed him a little must have forgotten just what happened. Must have forgotten who he was. 
He was a debtor of the worst kind. He had this enormous debt that was graciously wiped clean. And he didn't do anything to, to earn that. He didn't do a single thing to have his debt forgiven. He didn't pay for it. He didn't work it off. His debt was such that 10 lifetimes would not have been enough to pay off that debt. He was shown mercy that was literally life-saving. He is us. We are him. There is not a single person in this room who is a Christian who could have been saved by anything less than the death of Jesus Christ on a cross. There is not a one of us whose debt was, was of the variety that something less than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross would have been enough to pay for our debt. That's got to change us. That should change you. This servant who was forgiven such a great debt should have been changed as a result when you come to understand that, that you are guilty as charged and you really do deserve judgment and yet you're shown mercy, that should change you. That has got to change you. I once was lost and now I'm found and I didn't do the finding. It had nothing to do with me like suddenly coming to my senses and figuring out my, my situation. I was saved. I didn't do the saving. I was blind, and now I see, and I'm not the one who fixed my vision. That was, that was Jesus. I was on death row on account of my sins. And God mercifully stayed the execution and granted me the free gift of life. When that happens to you, it changes you. You and I are in no position to sit in judgment and condemnation of anybody. When I see sin in somebody else, it's familiar because I've seen it in myself first. We talk all the time about sexual sin. I've seen sexual sin in my own life before I've seen it in anybody else's life. Pride. We see pride in someone else, and there's something about pride that just irks us. I've seen pride in my own life before I've seen it in anybody else's. Selfishness. I don't like people who are selfish, and yet I, I've seen that in my own life. Addiction. We see addiction. I know how I can turn to things to relieve stress. <laughs> judgmentalism and hypocrisy, that's my favorite thing to judge. I know how judgmental and hypocritical I can be. This is my story. To God be the glory. I'm only what? I'm only a sinner saved by grace. So how can we, who have been forgiven so much, have a judgmental spirit? have a condemning spirit about anyone? How can we who are the greatest debtors begin to count the pennies of somebody else's debt? 
Have we forgotten who we are? The Apostle Paul, he had reason to boast. He was zealous for the Lord unlike anybody else. The, the rigor that he brought to his, his relationship with God, the devotion was unparalleled, and yet he considered himself to be the chief of all sinners. He recognized that that servant that owed 10,000 pounds, that was him. You see, Satan doesn't care if you fall off the path of discipleship to one side into this great cesspool of sin. If you do, that's great for him, mission accomplished. But he doesn't care if you fall off the other side either into self-righteousness, thinking I didn't fall into the mud pit like those other people. For him, if we fall off the path into self-righteousness, it's just as great, mission accomplished. And truth be told, it's probably for us a more dangerous side of the path to fall off. Because when you're self-righteous, what that does is it supplants the need for Christ. I see myself no longer as in need of a Savior because I am performing so well. I mean, think of the parable of the two sons. The one fell into a cesspool of sin. The other stayed home and worked for the father diligently. I mean, oh, such a hard worker. He performed so well. But at the end of the story, who's with the father? It's the one that was in the mud pit that came to his senses, came back and pleaded for mercy. He ends up in the house with the father where the self-righteous older brother is still outside in the fields, just burning with anger. I think it's a, a bit of an irony that uh, faces us as we grow in our relationship with the Lord. The more rigorous I am in my own faith, the more prone I am to developing this self-righteous, this condemning spirit, this judgmentalism. There's a reason that it was the Pharisees who were often the targets of Jesus' accusation of hypocrisy and judgmentalism. It's because they were the most zealous, the most rigorous in their pursuit of righteousness. Now, does that mean, well, the answer is let's stop trying to be holy? No, that's not the answer. What it does mean is that we've always got to remember who we are, the chief of sinners, only a sinner saved by grace. The Pharisees, they saw the sin in others. They had 20-20 vision when it came to the sin in everybody else, but they were blind as bats when it came to their own sin. Again, such a dangerous combination. When you remember who you are, better yet, when you remember who God is and who Jesus is, the one who forgave your 10,000-pound bag of sin, you begin to see that he's also the one who desires you to forgive others of their sin. So listen to the passage again. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure, the measuring cup that you use, it's going to be measured to you. And so my question is, what if we 
actually took Jesus at his word and didn't just say, oh, that's just figurative language. What if we actually believe that Jesus meant this and intended this? That in the same manner we judge others, that's how God is going to judge us. If you knew that Jesus was going to use your rubric of judgment that you apply to other people as the same rubric that he applies to you as he judges you, how would that impact your judgment? I know for me some of the things it would do. I'd be much more inclined to forgive, to forgive quickly. I'd be much more inclined to lead with grace, to lead with love in all of my relationships. I'd be much more inclined to look for the good in people rather than always looking for the, the, the bad, the, that gotcha spirit. I'd be much more alarmed by my disgust that I have towards certain groups of people. And I'd be alarmed how I can get together with people who think like me, feel like me, and how we can have a mocking, sarcastic spirit about that other group. I'd be more humble, recognizing that I don't know all there is to know about what another person has experienced and what has contributed to who they are. Or how about this question? If you knew that Jesus was really going to use the same measuring cup of grace towards you that you use with other people, how would that impact you? Would we not be looking for a bigger measuring cup? What if Jesus meant what he said? I'm going to close with this one thought. Uh, it is the nature of sin that we are usually the last people to see it in ourselves. Like we see it in others, but we're often the last person to see it in our own life. You know, take some sins, take racism, for example. Do you think a racist person knows that they're racist? They're probably the last person to say, yeah, I'm a, a racist. Or a, a person who's proud. Do they recognize, yeah, I'm proud? Probably not. Haters, they don't see themselves as haters. The same thing is true with judgmentalism. Somebody who's, a, who's judgmental and condemning doesn't see themselves as judgmental and condemning. And so what does that mean for us? It means rather than starting from the premise that I'm not judgmental and I'm not hypocritical unless proven otherwise, maybe we ought to start from the premise, yeah, there probably is some judgmentalism that lives in me and some hypocrisy that lives in me. And then say, God, show me. Show me where it is and give me the grace and the courage to take that on and to repent of that. Join me as we pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who leads with grace.